Father, draw us close today and teach us to abide in you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Father, our hearts are so often drawn after so many lesser things. Father, teach us to abide in you as you draw us unto yourself. All of our power, all of our strength depends upon you, Lord. I depend upon you today, Father, to communicate the truth of your word. We all depend upon you, Father, to have ears to hear and the power to obey. So Holy Spirit, we pray that in the next few moments that you would move in this place, empower your word to go forth unhindered, empower your word to be received in the hearts that are present. Bless our time together, and above all, may it bring glory and honor to your name. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. You can be seated. And as you're seating, welcome. So grateful to be able to lead us in our time of worship in the Word together today. If you're joining us here in person or online, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dave Eatman. I serve here as an assistant pastor. I'm always thankful for the opportunities to uh, lead us together in our Sunday morning worship in the Word. We're moving into just kind of a two-week little mini-series titled Legacy, and today's message is entitled Living Intentionally in Light of the Gospel. Our mission as Cross Community Church is to preach the gospel and make disciples. The gospel of Jesus Christ is perhaps one of the most defining moments in the history of mankind, and certainly if we belong to him, should be the defining moment in the history of our own lives. The reality that we were born in our sin, we were separated eternally from a holy God because of our sin, and yet because of the sinless, perfect life of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross in our place, his glorious resurrection and ascension back to the right hand of the Father, that we can receive that free gift of eternal life that he has offered on our behalf and yield our lives to him in submission and follow after him and have our eternity secured. And this gospel is not just meant, though, to one-time event that saves us and seals our eternity. It does that, but it, it should be something that permeates every aspect of our identity, that colors all that we are and all that we do until the day that the Lord calls us home. You know, we're so prone to put our identity in so many things. I served in the Marine Corps back in the 90s. I know we have several Marines Uh, both prior and current in our church. And one of the monikers of the Marine Corps is once a Marine, always a Marine. I know many of you have heard that. And that that identity is so strong. It's so strong in my family that uh, I can hardly get started on telling a story where one of my kids would pipe up and say, back when I was in the Marine Corps, kind of mocking, you know, what's about to come. It's so strong that I can get together with someone else that I've never met before and find out that they're a Marine, and then all of a sudden we're telling sea stories about different things. That identity is so strong as a Marine, it just permeates uh, every aspect of a Marine's life often. And yet so much more should our identity as followers of Jesus Christ permeate all that we are and all that we do. Over the last several weeks, 
Uh, Pastor Taylor took us through the book of Titus as we looked at our common faith through the lens of Paul's letter to one of his disciples and protégés, Titus. And in addition to planting churches all throughout the Mediterranean, Paul consistently poured into individuals through discipling relationships and partnerships wherever he went. Paul understood that the great commission mandate that we possess as followers of Christ was serious about leaving an eternal legacy through pouring into others, through planting churches, and through discipling relationships and partnerships. We've seen how that played out through Titus's life over the last several weeks, and this week and next we'll look at two other discipling relationships, partnerships that Paul had, and the impact they had on the establishment of the church in which the foundation our church is built upon today. When we think about Paul's co-laborers, we often think about individuals like Titus and Timothy and Silas and Barnabas and Phoebe and Lydia, but on at least one occasion we see where Paul partnered with a couple who in the face of adversity in their lives and in a circumstance that they probably wouldn't have signed up for, fully surrendered their lives, their circumstance for the advance of the gospel. So today we're going to be centering our time together in Acts 18, surveying what we know about the life of Aquila and Priscilla, a spiritual power couple, if you will, that co-labored together with Paul and were instrumental in the establishment and furtherance of the New Testament church. And what we'll see together is that when, we, when our identity is firmly rooted in Jesus Christ, we can participate in the advance of the kingdom of God when we allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to permeate every aspect of our lives. So let's read together, beginning in Acts 18 and verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul had just been in Athens. He was on his second missionary journey. And if you're familiar with Acts 17, Paul was in Athens. He had been waiting there for Silas and Timothy to join him. And as he was waiting, he was traversing through the city. And he was seeing all the different shrines and monuments and things to all the different gods uh, in Athens. And he saw the one famously, to an unknown God. And Paul, the consummate apologist and missionary, was able to take that and, and take that kind of cultural thing that they had there to the unknown God and turn that into a demonstration of who this unknown God is, explaining to them Jesus Christ. And he did that for Mars Hill. And if you've ever had a chance to go to Athens, maybe you've seen that. Larry and I were blessed to be able to travel there a few years ago. And it was amazing to stand on Mars Hill. It's just this little rock outcropping right outside the city, and you're looking up at Athens, uh, up on the hillside, and just envisioning Paul standing there, expounding upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so after this, Paul travels 50 miles west to Corinth. And we see as he's in Corinth that we're first introduced to this couple that we hear of popping up in Scripture from time to time that co-labored with Paul, named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. We don't know a lot about their background, but what we do know uh, from both scripture and history is that, first of all, they always labored together and ministered together as a couple, as far as we know. Every time we see them in scripture, they're mentioned together as a couple. I think that's awesome because my wife, Laurie, and I serve together in vocational ministry, and we get to do that together as a couple. We see that here that Aquila and Priscilla served as a team. Aquila was a Jew from Pontus. That was northern Galatia along the Black Sea. Uh, that's where uh, would be modern-day 
Turkey. Priscilla was possibly a Gentile, maybe even of a wealthy background. It's possible that she was a Roman aristocrat. We do know that many times as they labored together with Paul, uh, her labors were primary. Her name is often mentioned first, and that would indicate that she was kind of taking the lead often between her and her husband in what they were doing as they labored with Paul. They had been in Rome, but importantly, where we, where we first meet them, they have been expelled from Rome because of religious persecution at the hand of Emperor Claudius. So they, they move from Rome, they settle in Corinth, and this is around 49 AD. And we know that they were tent makers by trade. Uh, it's interesting we find out here that Aquila and Priscilla worked with Paul as tent makers. Uh, tents were very important in Roman society. It's not just like the Coleman camping tent that you have to go camping with on a weekend. These were a big part of life and economy. They were used by individuals for dwellings. There wasn't a Hampton Inn or Holiday Inn on every corner, so often they were used by travelers. And then, like our military still does today, the Roman government would use them for military purposes. So here in Acts, Luke introduces us to a couple who, in following Christ, even in the midst of being persecuted for their faith and having to move because of it, found opportunities to serve the Lord by hosting Paul and partnering with him in the ministry. So first, let's look together at redeeming our circumstances in gospel service. You know, if we're not careful, we can read over things like we see here with Aquila and Priscilla and just kind of brush past them and not really think through the the gravity of what's going on. Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jews, at least Aquila was a Jew, they were both followers of Christ, They had to leave their home in Rome and travel to another country because of their faith. If we just flesh that out for a minute and put ourselves in their circumstance, I mean, imagine if if next week, next month, there was a government mandate that all those who claim the name of Christ and follow him had to leave the United States, find a new country to live in. Imagine having to leave your home, maybe some of your family members, your friends, your job, maybe belongings, to go live in another country because you follow Jesus Christ. This is the situation, the magnitude of what Aquila and Priscilla find themselves in as we meet them. And yet they, in the midst of this, seek to redeem that circumstance in partnering together with Paul, working together during the week to make tents, establishing the church in Corinth. And just a little side note here, but I think it's worth mentioning. You know, we, we often think of Paul as a great apostle, missionary, evangelist, church planner, and he was those things. But most, if not all, Paul's ministry, and we see here and other places in Scripture, was bivocational. Paul worked as a tent maker by trade. And even as he's out on his second missionary journey, we see that as he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, they are laboring together to make tents as they are also planting the church in Corinth. We see a little bit of Paul's heart for this in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul writes, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So right out of the gate we see that from the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul conveys it is right for those that work in vocational ministry that are called to giving their lives to the ministry of the gospel to earn a living from that. That's right. However, Paul's heart, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present a gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right 
in the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that you should expect your pastoral staff and paid staff here to go out and get a job. That's not what Paul is saying. What we do see here, though, is that through Paul and committed ministry partners like Aquila and Priscilla, it is possible to be engaged in a life given to the gospel, even as we hold a secular vocation. And no matter what situation we find ourselves in, secular or sacred employment, living where we would like to or displaced or moved by our employer is a circumstance that can be redeemed by our calling to fulfill the Great Commission. In Paul's case, his second missionary journey here and the planting of the church in Corinth is actually advanced by the hospitality and the support of Aquila and Priscilla. As we'll see in a moment, their labors went beyond simply hosting Paul. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, there are certain things that should just classify and characterize who we are. Last week, Pastor Taylor talked about the fact that one of those is kindness. One of the hallmarks of a follower of Christ is just not being a jerk, right? Just being kind. Another one of those we see playing out right here in Aquila and Priscilla, and that is of hospitality. We, as followers of Christ, should be known as a hospitable people. Hospitality certainly is a spiritual gift. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts in a moment. But like all spiritual gifts, we all have an element of living out these things as followers of Christ. It's a general calling for all of us. First Peter 4.9, Peter writes, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12.13, Paul writes, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.2 writes, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Life has a way of throwing circumstances at all of us. We all find ourselves in situations, circumstances that we'd rather not find ourselves in. Maybe it is a loss of a job or an unexpected move. Maybe it's an extended illness in ourselves or one of our loved ones. Maybe the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's wayward children or broken relationships. The example we see set before us in Aquila and Priscilla is that no matter what life sends our way, that as followers of Christ, our circumstances can be redeemed by seeking to utilize that situation for the advance of the gospel, for the advance of the kingdom. And we can do this so naturally by just finding ways to pour into others and partner with the mission in the, sake of, in the, in the midst of the situation we find ourselves in. You know, we think about this concept called hospitality. Some of you may have heard the name Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield is a, uh, she's a wife, a mom, an author, uh, and, but her, uh, she has a very, uh, interesting and powerful testimony. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, and she was in a lesbian relationship and a champion and activist of LGBTQ rights. And it was through the hospitality and the kindness of a pastor and his wife who read one of her writings, who invited her into their home, invited her around their table, and just began to build a relationship with her having a conversation with her, learning more about what she thought, of, why she thought about the things that she thought, sharing with them the truths, with her uh, from their hearts, the truths of scripture. And over a period of time, the Lord worked through this couple, through their kindness, through their hospitality, through just working through that circumstance to bring her into a relationship with Jesus Christ. She has a compelling testimony that she's written in a book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she wrote another book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And this is an excerpt from the, from the preface. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. 
Radically ordinary hospitality is reflected in Christian homes that resemble those of the first century. As followers of Jesus, we should be known by our hospitality. We should be known by our kindness. And regardless of the circumstance we find ourselves in, that does not change our identity in Christ and who we are in the mission that we before us. We see that Aquila and Priscilla focus in on this mission, focus in on their identity, and redeem the circumstance they are being displaced for the sake of the gospel and planting the church in Corinth. But while hospitality is a general calling for all Christians, it does join the list of spiritual gifts that are variously given to all believers. And so next, we'll look together at employing our gifts in gospel advance. Throughout verses 5 through 17 here in Acts, we see that Silas and Timothy do eventually join Paul. And for the next year and a half, Aquila and Priscilla and Paul and Silas and Timothy work together to establish a church there in Corinth. And as so often happens, eventually persecution and opposition arises and begins to push against the work. And so at some point after this, Paul decides to begin working his way back to Antioch, where this missionary journey began by way of Ephesus. So we pick up the narrative in verse 18. After this, after the persecution that was taking place, the opposition that was taking place, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrae he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them, Aquila and Priscilla, there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked for him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So we see here that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila travel together to Ephesus. After being in Corinth, after joining together in partnership and planting the church there, Aquila and Priscilla now have become committed ministry partners of Paul and committed to the mission of planting the church. And so they travel with him over to Ephesus. Now what's interesting here is that Paul's model, unless he was run out of town, which we do see on at least one occasion, Paul's model is typically to go into a place to begin to establish believers, to raise up leaders, to disciple those leaders and equip them, and then to travel on to the next place. And yet here we see he only stays in Ephesus for a very, very short time. And it's quite possible that Paul felt confident to go ahead and move on because he had capable leaders in Aquila and Priscilla. What we do know is that they would establish a church in their home there in Ephesus. And we learn this from other places in Scripture. As Paul is writing from Ephesus to the, church, to the church in Corinth, to his first letter to the Corinthians, around four to five years later, Paul concludes his letter to the Corinthians by saying this in, in uh, chapter 16. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So four to five years later, not in addition to planting the church in Corinth, now Aquila and Priscilla have established a house church over in Ephesus. But that's not all. Not only do they establish a church in Ephesus, three to four years later, we find out from Paul's letter to the church in Rome that at some point they've traveled back to their original home in Rome and planted a house church there. Romans 16, Paul writes, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Aquila and Priscilla were committed ministry partners of Paul, bought into the Great Commission, seeking to be fully engaged in using their gifts and their resources wherever they went. And we note here that 
engaging in the mission of the gospel, using our giftings and resources, doesn't mean that just because God has equipped us in that is going to be easy. We see that Aquila and Priscilla risk their necks for Paul's life. And ministry sometimes can be messy, and it's messy because it involves people, and we as people are messy. We have this sin nature that rears its ugly head from time to time, and we still have to contend with it. And yet, we do not allow that to discourage us. We labor on for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the one who has called us to himself. Aquila and Priscilla recognized their gifting, the area that the Lord wanted them to pour into. And uh, there's several gifts lifted and listed throughout Scripture. I think for them, possibly their gifting was apostleship and giving. Apostleship, uh, when we see that in Scripture, I, there's, I call it big A and little a apostleship. Big A apostleship would be the office of apostle. That was those men that were trained directly and commissioned directly by Christ himself. Uh, that ended with Paul being the last big A apostle that held that office. But apostleship, planting of churches, the movement of the church throughout history continues all the way down through what we see today. And as followers of Christ, we are each given a spiritual gift or gifts to use in the equipping and edification of the body, to pour into the life of the body. And we find spiritual gifts uh, for us in at least four different places in Scripture. Romans 12, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members, one of them. Having gifts for according to the grace given to us, let us use them. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To the Ephesians, Paul writes, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Four different places in Scripture we find identifiable spiritual gifts listed out for us. And, you know, it's, I'm of the opinion that this is probably one of the more misunderstood or mis- misapplied areas within the life of the body, that of spiritual gifting. Maybe some of you sitting here today know what your spiritual gift or giftings are. And the question for you then is if you do know that, how are you using them in the life of our body? Maybe some of you are sitting here going, I've never even heard of spiritual gifts. I didn't know there was such a thing. Or I've heard of it, but I don't really know what mine are. And there's online inventories and things out there that you can use to help try to discern that. But, but what I would say is just seek to understand how has God uniquely wired and equipped you to serve him? And I'm not talking about some specific cause or some specific area, but, but in the life of our body, looking at the identifiable gifts that we find in Scripture, we should all be operating in, in all of them to some extent, but God has uniquely equipped each and every one of you, if you were a follower of Christ, by what Paul says, the manifestation of the Spirit in you that uniquely equips and empowers and gives you passion in a certain area. Maybe you like to stand up in front of people and convey the truths of Scripture. Maybe if that's the case, then your gifting could be teaching or prophecy. 
Or maybe you're more of a behind-the-scenes person. You like to be a part of helping out to set up for events and, and prepare for things and make plans and, and set up for gatherings. And maybe your gifting is out of service or helps. Maybe you're really drawn towards building others up and advocating for others on their behalf. And maybe your gift is that of mercy. Maybe you are drawn towards bringing um, organization to different issues and challenges within the church. And maybe your gifting is leadership or administration. Maybe you just feel really compelled to give into the work of the, uh, the church and the mission financially. And maybe your gift is that of giving. Whatever your gift is, we should be finding that out committing those things to the work of the church rather than simply coming into a church gathering and occupying a seat. We are called to be a part of the life of the body. We're not called to relegate all of the work of the ministry to the paid staff. We're all called to be a part of the life of the body. And thankfully, I'm not saying this because I have an axe to grind. We have a serving people here at Cross Community Church. And we're grateful for that. But so often in our American economy, we can take a a consumer-driven mindset where it's all about what do we get out of this or that. And the economy of God is never meant to be consumer-driven, but one of giving into body life and being a part of it. For Aquila and Priscilla, they got this. Their identity in Christ permeated everything that they were, and even in the midst of where they found themselves, they poured their heart and life into the planning of churches out of their home. We see even at the conclusion of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, which is around 15 years after we first meet Aquila and Priscilla, part of Paul's concluding greetings to Timothy was to greet the church in Aquila and Priscilla's house. But not only were Aquila and Priscilla using their giftings and their energies to advance the gospel corporately through, their life, uh, through their, the life of their church, but finally they were discipling others for gospel legacy. Back in Ephesus, back in Acts 18, after leaving Corinth with Paul, Aquila and Priscilla began to establish the church there that was in their home. And soon another individual arrives that we hear of from time to time named Apollos, presumably on a missionary journey of his own. So we pick up again in Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's back where Corinth is, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so we see here that Apollos arrives on the scene, and as so often happened in the early first century church, uh, individuals could come in, and they may have a word from the Lord, and they would stand up and share maybe a word from the Lord or a testimony. And so Apollos does this, and as Aquila and Priscilla are hearing him, they're sitting here hearing him preach, Uh, they think, man, he is on fire. He's fervent in spirit. His Christology is down. He's got the work of the Lord Jesus down. But he didn't quite understand fully the doctrine of believer's baptism. His, His doctrinal precision in other areas wasn't quite where it needed to be. And so Aquila and Priscilla, understanding things like baptism and having that depth of knowledge in other theological things outside of the gospel, pulled Apollos aside privately and discipled him. 
And for all of his eloquence and gifting, Apollos in and of himself showed humility and teachability that he was willing to receive from them and grow in his faith and understanding. And while this might seem like a passing side note here in Acts 18, there's something significant that happens that we can't overlook. And that's that this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, were instrumental in equipping Apollos, who would go on to be a powerful preacher and leader in the early church. And we see right here that after spending time with Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos decides to go back over to Corinth, where they had just been planting a church with Paul. So he's blessed by the disciples, he's sent there, and their internal investment in him multiplied greatly from that point forward. It's apparent that Apollos had a great impact there. If you're familiar with the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that one of the first things Paul had to deal with in that letter was the fact that divisions were happening within the church at Corinth. And uh, what I call preacher groupies were developing, right? You had some people that were saying, hey, I came to know Christ under the ministry of Paul, uh, and, I, and I was saved and discipled by him. And so my, my uh, conversion, my following after Christ is uh, attributed to Paul. And others were saying, well, hey, mine came through Apollos. Paul, he's not that great of a speaker, but Apollos, he does, he's phenomenal. He's eloquent. I came to Christ under Paul. Others were saying, uh, I came to Christ under Peter. It was Peter's ministry that brought me to Christ. And then the super spiritual Pharisees in the crowd said, hey, uh, I came to Christ under Jesus himself. So you guys got nothing. And Paul was having to deal with that. But the point being is that Apollos, who was discipled by Aquila and Priscilla, is named in the early church alongside Paul and Peter and Jesus as being instrumental in the life and the establishment of the church. And some scholars even believe, and I think there's some credence to this, that Apollos is at least a contender for the unknown author of the book of Hebrews. So often we can view what seems minor as not really having a major impact for the kingdom. But what we never know is how God's going to use the seeds that we sow in obedience, seemingly a small thing, to impact a gospel legacy for generations and generations to come. Last year, many of us attended the GO Conference, and in that, we focused in on Robbie Gallaty's teaching around disciple-making, how to be a disciple who make disciples. And then we followed that up with 10 weeks of community group, going through Robbie Gallaty's book, growing up, training ourselves, equipping ourselves through his material on how to be a disciple who makes disciples. And the opening line of that book struck me and is stuck with me to this day. Robbie Gallaty writes, the gospel came to you because the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ saved you and redeemed your life was not only about you, but it's about who he would like to impact through your life in the generations to come. Has anybody here ever heard of Edward Kimball? No, well, it's good, because he was born in 1858, so it doesn't surprise me. Or not born in, excuse me. He was alive in 1858. So Edward Kimball was uh, a Sunday school teacher. He was not a full-time minister. He wasn't vocationally uh, active in full-time ministry service that way, but he taught Sunday school at his church. But he had a heart for gospel legacy. He had a heart for conveying the truths of Scripture to the next generation. And one day he was out buying a pair of shoes. And the Lord put it on his heart to share Christ with his young shoe salesman. And his shoe salesman named Dwight L. Moody came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Dwight Moody went on, of course, to become uh, a powerful preacher, leader in the early church. And a man named, a pastor named Frederick Meyer, several, several years later, was moved by 
Moody's preaching, was moved by the nationwide impact that Moody was having. And so Frederick Meyer began a nationwide preaching ministry of his own. In one of his sermons, a college student named J. Wilbur Chapman accepted Christ. Uh, He was convicted by the gospel. He accepted Christ and became a pastor himself. And following the model of what he had seen in uh, Meyer, began to hold evangelistic outreaches. As his ministry began to grow, he began to bring other men along beside him and pour into them and disciple them and train them for the ministry. And one of those young men that he brought along beside him was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday had been a baseball player and became an evangelist in his own right and was so prominent throughout the 20th century. Billy Sunday became a powerful evangelist across America. Billy Sunday held one of his evangelistic crusades in Charlotte, North Carolina. And after the event was over and it was a group of businessmen, Christian businessmen that came together and were just compelled by the impact that they saw from this big crusade, this big opportunity. And so they said, hey, let's do that again. And so they organized another event. They brought in another speaker to do it again. And this time they brought in a speaker named Mordecai Ham. And on the night that Mordecai Ham preached, a young man was in the audience uh, who almost wasn't, uh, uh, almost didn't attend. And his name was Billy Frank. And Billy Frank came to know the the Lord Jesus Christ that night. And we know Billy Frank by the name Billy Graham. The impact of that thread of gospel legacy that began with a Sunday school teacher's heart to share the Lord Jesus Christ with others traveled throughout almost two centuries and impacted countless thousands with the gospel. Robbie Gallaty himself, who we just talked about, was discipled by David Platt when David Platt was a seminary student and now is a pastor and disciple maker and equipper of disciples in his own right. Apollos, who we've already looked at, who was prominent in the early church, was discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. Each of these examples highlight God's plan for gospel legacy, a legacy that has been passed through generations and has landed upon each and every one of us in this room who claim the name of Christ. The question for us then naturally becomes, how will we continue that thread of gospel legacy for future generations? So what do we do with this today? What is our response? How can we live intentionally in light of the gospel? First, ask ourselves, how can the life circumstance we find ourselves in today be redeemed for God's glory? All of us are sitting here today probably carrying something probably having something in our life we may rather not have, maybe facing a circumstance or something this week or next month that we're not necessarily looking forward to. How can we redeem that for God's glory? Second, do you know your spiritual gifts? If not, I would encourage you to seek to find that out. Talk to our pastoral staff, your elders, your uh, community group leaders, another follower of Christ to seek to discern that, and then try to understand how can they be used for the advance of the kingdom right here in Cross Community Church. And then finally, who are the Apollos in your life that you are discipling to maturity? How are you moving that that thread of gospel legacy forward through the next generation simply by pouring into someone else and discipling someone else? Father, we thank you for the time that we've had together today to dive into your word, to look at the example of a couple in scripture who in the midst of adversity 
knew that their identity as followers of Christ was more important than anything else around them and used that as a launch point to pour their lives into the ministry of the gospel, making disciples, continuing the thread of gospel legacy to the next generation. So Father, as we survey our own hearts and lives today, show us how our identity as men and women redeemed by you, by the blood of Jesus, can be employed in advancing the gospel and the generations to follow. And Lord, now as we turn our thoughts and our hearts to a time of preparing for communion. God, we thank you for the opportunity each week to do this in remembrance of you. And Lord, as we enter into this time and space, we don't want to do so lightly. And so God, I just pray that right now as we are preparing physically, that we would prepare spiritually. And that Holy Spirit, that you would just survey our hearts even right now and show us those areas of our life that are currently out of alignment with your will, those areas of sin that have uh, crept in, the things that we know we need to repent of and surrender to you. So bring those to our hearts and minds even right now, God. Search us. And Lord, for those things that you are revealing to us through your spirit. Lord, give us the, the power, the desire even to repent. To turn from our sin, turn from those things that grieve you and turn to you afresh and anew. Receiving the full forgiveness that is offered freely by the blood of Jesus when we turn from our sin and turn to you. And as we do so, Father, we do so with thankfulness, with thankful hearts for the assurance that comes that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.